yo, what's good, Internet? It's the Harvest of Colin Atrophy, and I'm very happy to welcome you to episode number 36 of uh, Life Harvester Radio, my podcast that I call a radio show because the word podcast is embarrassing. It's a dumb word. Uh, my guest this month is Atia Jones, uh, a friend of mine here in Pittsburgh who is an artist working in Pittsburgh though I hesitate to call her a Pittsburgh artist for reasons that will be clear to you if you listen to the show. We had a lovely conversation. We talked about race in America. We talked about being a New Yorker. We talked about um, gentrification. We talked about what it means to be from a place and what being from a place means about considering yourself part of a place that you moved to, uh, a.k.a. the baggage of a New Yorker uh, to feel authenticity. We talked about Pitbull, Mr. 305 himself. Uh, We talked about SUNY Purchase College. Uh, We talked about Wild Fang. Uh, And Wild Fang, please sponsor us. Um, Also, we talked about my transition, because Atia asked. And um, I haven't mentioned this on the podcast, so now is as good a time as any. But I started estrogen last month. Uh, Use they or she pronouns for me. My name is staying the same. Uh, I'm still a New York asshole. And that's it. Let's get into the conversation in now. I'm from Brooklyn, mm-hmm. which is weird because normally I just say I'm from New York. Right. Uh, and I forget that New York is actually a giant state. In my like, in my brain, I'm just like, what do you mean? I'm from New York City, the only part that matters. Right. Um, no, but I'm from Brooklyn. Yeah, that's that was like I've had a few, um, like you know, I, I didn't move out of New York till I was 32, and I've had a few, um, like uh, minor culture shocks. Mm-hmm. I had traveled, so like I knew like other parts of the co- people are passive aggressive in Berkeley. People are um, <laughs> like really polite in the Chattanooga or whatever. You know, like I knew some stuff, but like the the biggest one here was that when people ask me where I'm from and I say New York, they assume I mean upstate. Mm-hmm. And I have never been anywhere in the country or just like hung around any part of the world where you say the words New York and people think right. like fucking Rochester. Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, and that's absolutely the case where they start somewhere closer. It it is, uh, I feel like I've learned so much about uh, ego and uh, self-importance in the last couple of years and and just being like, oh, right, there are things outside of my bubble. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think the the biggest shock that I had when I, moved to Texas because I hadn't, I, I don't know if I just had never talked about it before or if I was just like sober and out of New York for the first time and like paying attention to conversations. But I realized that um, Murder, She Wrote wasn't the hot song at every middle school dance everywhere in the country. Like I really, that was like the most universal, th- I was like every eighth grader did the kid and play dance oh, yeah. to Murder, She Wrote. Like that is what, and it was like, by the time I was in eighth grade, that song already had happened. Like, it wasn't like mm-hmm. it was a new... A yeah, hit. it's a classic. Right. It just then. was like, 
that's just on mm -hmm. at every school dance. And I realized when I left that like, um, and I think in a larger way, I realized that like the, the amount that uh, sort of like, um, like tropical or Caribbean culture had impacted my childhood in ways mm -hmm. that I didn't even see just being in New York. It's like people always talk about the like sort of Jewish cultural influence mm -hmm. in New York City, which is great. Like my Puerto Rican neighbor called her husband a schmuck all the time. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like I love it. But um, I don't think I don't think there's as much discussion. And I think there's like clearly um, a like racist undertone well, for yeah. why. But I don't think there's nearly as much discussion about the intense uh, like Caribbean influence on New York City culture. I've thought about it a lot recently. I have a friend who is still back home and she texted me the other day that she was like slamming some oxtail and this is like a white girl from Long Island. And I was like, how has the world turned out that I live in Pittsburgh and I'm dying for like oxtails and just every type of stew and beef patties and all of these things that were just like normal food, like everyday food. Right. How's it that I'm here unable to find any of this? Yo, have you been to Fireside in Wilkinsburg? I have not. Well, wait, the fireside that's on, that's like behind the Target on, or it's like. on Penn Ave in Wilkinsburg okay. near like the Asian market over there. Oh, um, that's like that the real one. Main strip in Wilkinsburg. There's a fake one. Oh, There's really? like a fireside cafe or something that's uh, behind the Target. And that's the one that I like thought people were talking about. And I was really worried. But I anyway. I don't know about that one. The one, yeah. the one in Wilkinsburg is tight. The oxtail's really good. Uh, it like falls right off the bone. It's delicious. That's I've I heard. Decent patties. I haven't had a good patty outside New York ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess I went to a couple places. I went to that one place by Onion Maiden. That's like Leon's, I think mm -hmm. it's called. And I was like sorely disappointed in my meal. Um, there's a place not far from here on the by Badamo's actually that looks pretty legit, but I haven't been yet. I wonder what that spot is. I don't know what it's I called. I don't know it. Anyway, we could talk about um, the six good restaurants in Pittsburgh all day. But hey. Let's, yeah. <laughs> it's dire here. I get my kicks. Yeah, you know, you, you figure know. it out. But so you grew up in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. What part of Brooklyn? I'm from Flatbush. Um, mm -hmm. So like being completely immersed in Caribbean culture. Yeah, for sure. But it, it wasn't something that we necessarily like appreciated it was the nuisance you know like hearing every reggae remix of like an american song that was the same version just put to a different beat <laughs> blasting through my kitchen windows like this is all the shit my mom would complain about right and it's all the stuff that i'm like aching for just summer in general i think should be noisy and chaotic in this way that you're just inundated with other people's culture and it's awful when you're in it but like this summer just walking around and hearing so much like Bruce Springsteen and that like Americana version sure of summer just felt so foreign yeah and like I like Bruce Springsteen just fine but that's not what I want to hear all the time yeah it's not the only version of mm -hmm. being outside yeah exactly but yeah what was, uh, you went to public school in New York? Mm-hmm. I went to great schools. Yeah, where'd you, where'd you it go to was really, It was very lucky. My mom, uh, 
I have three older sisters, so I'm the youngest of four. Okay. And my youngest older sister is seven years older okay. than I am. So it's seven, eight, and I want to say ten, I think. Um, and they all went to schools that were bust out, like they were bust out of our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have to go to Erasmus or the other junior high school that was in walking distance. Um, and so I went to really great schools. I did definitely suffer, I think, the, the cultural ramifications of being bussed out and going to like a primarily white school, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, stuff that I'm still working out now, where I'm like, oh, right, there's culture and race, and these two things are often intertwined, but very different. Uh, and so culturally, uh, I grew up in a very like white setting. Sure. And it wasn't necessarily only white people, but my school situations were very culturally white settings. Um, I went to IS-234 Cunningham for junior high uh, out in like, I don't know if it's, the neighborhood itself is like off of King's Highway. It's not quite Sheepshead Bay, not Midwood. It's like this other thing that's happening that I just, I never knew the name of it. Yeah. I didn't know a lot of neighborhood names in Brooklyn until the gentry came and told me that things were called things. <laughs> um, seriously. Yeah, like, no, that's I was like, I'm from Flatbush. What do you mean? It's just Flatbush. And they're like, yeah, but Kensington or Ditmas Park. And yeah, Flatbush is just like, huge. What are you, the Q train. That's the, that's where I live, right. <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, so those were like, I went to those middle schools and then I went to a vocational high school in Manhattan. And what that, kind of vocation? Uh, fashion. So the school itself uh, was a fashion-based program. Uh, it was the precursor to FIT actually. Okay. Um, FIT came to be because they needed somewhere to then send these women for secondary school. Right. Uh, and that's why it's four blocks away from FIT. So it's called the High School of Fashion Industries. Um, and I studied pattern making and draping. And so fashion construction based yeah. classes. That's cool. Yeah. Did you have to do like Regents? Uh, like yeah. So it was all curriculum? of the regular school stuff um, plus this additional work. So I remember being little and like my sisters by their senior year of high school, they were out of school by like 1.30 because they had all their credits. Mm-hmm. And that was not a thing that ever existed for us yeah. at fashion. We were in school the whole day. Um, and that was a culture shock because when I got to high school, um, that was the first time I was around like Dominicans and Puerto Ricans coming from uptown. Mm-hmm. I mean, just black kids that did not go to white schools, <laughs> you know, this like other type of black culture came to be uh, for the first time for me in a, in a really big way. Um, and that, that was its own interesting experience. Yeah, for sure. Is that where you got started in your like, I mean, clearly you were interested in making stuff before you went there or you wouldn't have gone there, right? Yeah. I, I learned how to hand sew in home ec in June, in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always been, I've been five, seven since fifth grade. Um, but I was real thin, like this is me like filled out, yeah. you know, 
Uh, and so learning how to sew gave me the, it, it empowered me to like put on outfits that I actually felt good about because I was tall. So I was buying like size seven jeans, but I was only a size zero. So either things were too short and tight or they were long enough and loose. And so I found this, you know, sewing gave me the power to like, yeah, look good for the first time. And I mean, granted looking back like hot mess, but sure as a kid but like conceptions even like even if i can look back at me at 14 where i like cut my jenkos so that you could see the tops of my combat boots mm -hmm. and i had like <laughs> that sentence yeah horrifying <laughs> i had these neon orange new kids on the block shoelaces that i stole from that store across the street from the rehab church on St. Mark's place. The one that had like, it's still there. That, oh yeah. With the, they had like glass cases is like, like one of the t-shirt stores, but not a t-shirt store. They had all kinds of stuff. Gas mask bongs. Uh, mostly yes. In the window. But like, oh my God. and then like I had like, I, I probably, I, I mean, I just like looked like an idiot, you know, but at the time I was like, I think it's really important to think about like doing self fashioning at those ages as like an important mm -hmm. step in learning how to be a person, mm -hmm. you know? So I think like, even if whatever ways you felt empowered as like a 12 year old or whatever, uh, to like that, like you look fresh and you look back on it and you're like, I look like a hot mess. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it's not that important, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely like my mom always dressed us really cool. Fashion has always been very important to me mm -hmm. in regards to self-expression. Um, and I feel lucky to have had that in my life from the jump. Yeah, for like sure. My mom was cool. My uncle's an artist. He was cool. Uh, my grandmother was a total betty when she was doing her thing. My grandfather was sharp. Like we've always, I come from a long line of just like great dressers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I got to do, fashion in junior high school or, or I learned how to sew ceramics as well as photography. Um, and then I went to this completely arts based high school, right. uh, hung out in like union square a lot and was just always exposed to the cool things happening. Yeah. You know, was growing up at like the height of TRL and times square becoming the thing, the monster that it is now, but like, it was just cooler. Yeah, Times Square was weird. Times Square's weird and cool and like TRL happening and knowing that every celebrity was just 40 floors above you. Yeah. There was something, something about that time. Yeah, and it's still like, it's still kind of weirdly grimy in Times Square, mm -hmm. but like it's hard. I feel like for my conception of Times Square is like that Disney store went in mm -hmm. and then it felt like there was this big shift. Mm -hmm. And it might just be because that's when I had started doing like um, anti-globalization protesting as a teen. So I was like, that was like a thing that I protested. Mm -hmm. um, but it seemed like that was like a big deal where it was like prior to that, because the Disney store going in required making it more family friendly, which mm -hmm. required like shutting down all the theaters and like kind of cleaning it up in that Giuliani way mm -hmm. that is um, deeply fucked up. Mm -hmm. But tell me more about your mom and your artist uncle. Ooh. We don't uh, have to talk about that if you don't. No, want no, to. no. It's they're all great. Yeah. Um. So 
My uncle, his name is Mishindo, and he is a illustrator, um, a painter. He has done a lot of, you know, like black superhero based work um, and is well respected in, in the comic book scene. But I grew up in a house full of his paintings. Yeah. Um, and going to his studio as a kid and just watching him airbrush because he was really been into airbrush, uh, airbrushing in the 80s and 90s. And so I've always had exposure to, to the idea of the arts being a way into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and to my mom's credit, I, I, I thought about this a lot when I moved here. I met a lot of people of color who would talk about certain spaces and they were like, that's not for me or... You know, like, oh, I always think about that place, but that's for white people or whatever it is. And sure, there's a certain limited tone that I was hearing for the first time that I've never really, that I, I wasn't raised with. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been like a, I'm going to go anywhere and do whatever I want kind right. of person. Because, I don't know, it just never dawned on me that a place could be not for me. Um and, and I owe that to my mother who, you know, I've never thought that there was anything I couldn't do in the world. Right. You know, she let me try anything and uh, be whatever person I was going to grow up to be. Because I don't think I ever came across as like a high risk to her. You know? Sure. Like she knew I wasn't out doing weird shit. It was just like, you know, working at teen people uh, and hanging out in the park. You know, like I yeah. didn't do any, I wasn't a bad kid, um, but she definitely let me know that I could like go out into the world and, and do my own thing, which I'm grateful for. Yeah. It's so rare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm really, I'm thankful for that. And I, I think that, uh, like I've asked my mom what she would have done with her life if she didn't have kids. Because um, I always expect that she's going to say some like big grandiose thing and she's just like, I don't know, I always wanted to be a mom. And that level of knowing that that was enough to satisfy her makes me feel okay with all the willy-nilly shit that I do. Because sometimes I'm, I feel like I'm disappointing or like I should have done more by now. I'm like, no, her dreams are fulfilled. She gets to be a mom. <laughs> And she's a mom forever now. Right. You know, you can't hand that back in. So I don't feel so badly for being this windy artist type. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. You know, my mom, she, like, she, my parents met in college. And, uh, and my mom had, like, all these professors kind of begging her to go to grad school. And, and I oftentimes wonder, like, what her life would have been like if she had pursued her like um pretty intense unpolished intellect because mm-hmm. um, she's so fucking smart but she she was just like yeah I just always wanted to be a mom like I didn't it didn't it didn't feel like a, I mean it felt like a choice obviously that I got to make but like it didn't feel like a hard choice it was just mm-hmm. like this is what I want and I think for a while I was like I thought that was weird or I was disappointed by it or something mm-hmm. But it's, there's something really beautiful about that, that she just was like, this is what I want. I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And then she did it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's so tight. Right. And probably puts her, puts 
her or your mom, you know, in a position to be like, well, I did what I want. And now I want these children. Like, and if, especially if what she wants is to be a mom, part of being a mom is like, let your kid fucking live, mm-hmm. you know? And God, that's really wonderful. You mentioned that it's, it was, it almost felt disappointing to you. Mm-hmm. Why is that? I think there's like, um, like contending with some types of like uh, residual second wave feminism mm-hmm. where it's like uh, that shouldn't be something that someone wants, you know? Where you feel like they should have wanted more. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like she should have wanted, not that like, it's like I can't feel like the patriarchy robbed my mom of a life if she has the life that she wanted, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, it's hard to, you know, I was reading a lot of like, and I'm talking like as a, I was an adolescent when I, I felt, I felt that, like a little disappointed about that. Um, but I, you know, I was reading a lot of like Valerie Solanus and like Andrea Dworkin and shit. And I was just like, no, like this is like, women are at war with the patriarchy, mm-hmm. you know? And it was weird to be like, it's actually just like, this is what my mom wants and it's what she gets. And there needs to be a feminism that is inclusive of that design right. also. Does yeah. that make sense? No, absolutely. I, I was just curious on, on your take because it is, I think that that, at least for me, that was a natural response to be like, what? But what about your dreams? But to have that approach is to say that, like, I am not satisfying enough. You right. know, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. my existence isn't enough for you, mom. Um, which is its own spiral of, of self-actualization and, and, again, ego thoughts. Yeah, for sure. You know. Um, did you, like, were you, was your uncle around a lot besides just having his paintings in the house? Like, did you interact with him or go to his studio or anything when you were a kid? Yeah. Yeah, my uncle was around a lot. I grew up a lot with my... It's weird. I, I have been thinking about this recently. My memories of my mom are really strong in my teenage years, like once I started going to school in Manhattan, but the years before that, like always with my sisters and with my grandmother a lot and just kind of like at my friends' houses. And I wonder where, like, cause I know my mom was working a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, sorry to, I'm like in my no, own no. tangents. I'm You're just good. like, where the hell was this woman? She's probably at work all the time. Yeah. Um, but I did get to hang out with my uncle a lot. And he was also like the first person that exposed me to house music. And he's very, um, he's a very Afrocentric man. I mean, he was born with a different name and changed his name really early. He like went out onto his own around 18 and has survived on art ever since. He's very quick to tell you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we did get to visit his studio a lot and I, I've thought about where my understanding of relationships come from. And I have like a lot of memories of his relationships with people growing up and uh, looking at different family structures through how he united his family with, you know, different partners who also had children and kind of understanding that family shifts and can be chosen and, and can change throughout your life. Um, I don't see him as much as I, I haven't seen him in years actually. Um, is there was like a 
familial falling out. My grandfather passed away, sure. and you know, accusations of who was taking inherited like an inheritance that didn't actually exist and was used yeah. basically to settle his end of life things. Yeah, um, I feel like that happens a lot. Yeah, and I, I think I, I think we all have missed out due to this really petty, uninformed arguments that happened in yeah. like the 90s Jesus you know? yeah what but, um what, what were the comic books he worked on um he's done a lot of independent releases but he also worked on like a blade series with like directly with Wesley Snipes um cool and he has like a contract with Marvel for something this year I Honestly, I'm not much of a comic book yeah, that's person. Fine. I just have seen his layouts. Um, and again, this is like the this sort of Afrofuturism thing that's always existed in my right. life. Because he was really big into like car design. And so we just had all of these giant paintings of like beautifully airbrushed like future cars and these like African beautiful princes and princesses kind of thing but like in the future yeah 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 um and so again this this i grew up with this very limitless imagination that's beautiful it's it is so crazy to think about like how much i have been able to how much i've taken for granted really um that i i haven't quite put together until i moved here yeah like oh blackness is really different everywhere when did you move here uh it's been three and a half years um oh wow i thought you had been here like for a while when i got here but it's, mm -mm. you were here just like a year and a half before me wow okay but a lot happened a lot has happened in, yeah. in these three and a half years what um, brought you to pittsburgh <laughs> uh that question makes me laugh I've, I have been answering it for the last three and a half years um, <laughs> at least once or twice a week and um, I a couple of things I had a friend who was living here and we talked every day all the time um, and she was just like I think you should move to Pittsburgh and then I got here and I realized that she lived in Brighton Heights and I was living in friendship. And those two neighborhoods are nowhere near each other. I don't even know what Brighton Heights is. Um, yeah, it's like down 28. There's like a red, white, and blue out in Crafton, which is sort of... Oh, I know that. It's Christ just story. like yeah. somewhere. I don't know. It's yeah, over sure. there. It's like, it's just, yeah, it's that's over a whole there. Other world. Um, and I moved here and I realized that I didn't know anybody in the city. I had yeah. one friend, but... She was kind of far and, um, yeah. And so I got here and I was kind of by myself, but she was a part of that catalyst. And then, uh, I had also done, I, I had done a couple of other residencies in 2016 and remembered that I could leave New York. Right. You know, I'd forgotten and was in that hamster wheel of just like working in the service industry and working to pay rent and then just being in bars until four o'clock in the morning, because what do you do when you get off of work at two? Yeah. Um, and and then I left for a month for the first residency, and it was the longest I had been out of New York 
since moving back from uh, living in LA in 2009. I was like, oh, right. I can do whatever I want. I forgot. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I'm pretty passionate about still. Doing whatever you want? I can do whatever I want. Yeah. Um, and it's hard working for myself and, and figuring this stuff out and knowing that I'm just going to keep fucking it up because I'm not very good with a schedule and like mm-hmm. getting on a routine. Um, and it's part of what I like about this freedom, but it's also a hindrance. It's very daunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially as like a depressive person. If I don't have a reason to get out of bed, I can just be overwhelmed with the sadness. Oh, girl, yeah. You know? It's... So that's that's its own bubble. Yeah, for sure. You know? So let's, there's plenty of time in between fashion high school and moving to Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. What, what happens after high school? Do you go to college? Yeah, Where'd I went go? to Purchase. I was oh no shit. Yeah, wow. yeah. I went to SUNY Purchase. Um, I had applied to FIT and got in. Would have gone like free, full sale kind of thing, but I didn't want to go to school four blocks away from high school. And Makes I had sense. taken classes at FIT. I was really familiar with the campus. It just wasn't new enough. Yeah. Um, for I had applied to Fredonia. And they wanted a second part to the application. And I was a lazy high school asshole. Sure. And I was like, don't feel like it. So I went to purchase and I had never been there. Uh, much akin to moving to Pittsburgh. I hadn't been here. And I was just like, well, sounds good. I'm going to go. Um, and I was a new media major, which at the time meant nothing. Right. Um, I was in that program with, you know, like Dan Deacon um, who went on to make that Crayola commercial and was on, like, <laughs> you know, like exploded. I think he was on Letterman or something the yeah, year yeah, that we all yeah. graduated and we we're like, what the fuck? How did this asshole make it? Um, but yeah, I went to SUNY Purchase. It was such a great, weird school. Yeah. It's kind of a magical place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having like two music venues on campus and... We had like a co-op, uh, my sophomore year, my best friend and I heard that there was like a defunct cheese club and we like restarted the cheese club and we're getting funding to go down to New York and like go to Murray's cheese and just buy <laughs> aggressive amounts of cheese and come back and sit in our smelly ass co-op and just be weird college students. Yeah. And it's weird to look back on it because Again, I was just busy with good things. There's like a heroin epidemic happening. There's all this shit that like I didn't know about. Yeah. Um, kind of like being in New York as a teenager. I'm like, oh, kids are going out and doing what? Ecstasy? Mm-mm. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I had no clue. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I went to college, uh, moved back to New York after college, and then moved to L.A. for a little while. Okay. It's a bit of a king in an empty castle situation. I was just like, this is the most beautiful place I've ever been. Um, but I have no one to share it with. Yeah, fuck. And 
it got to be a lot after a while. Yeah. And what's your like uh, art making practice throughout all these moves? Mm. Like, are you making? Because I know, I know you as an artist primarily for these, um, the like the knitting and stuff work mm -hmm. that you do, and then also for these like kind of very um, process oriented. It seems like in uh, like meditative, long detailed drawings that you do. Mm -hmm. um, um. So the drawings don't start happening until 2013. Okay. Um, well, I was living in, probably in, in those years, I'm still doing a lot of photo work, which is something that I've just added to my professional repertoire. Mm -hmm. um, again, I started taking pictures when I was 11. Right. And when I got to college, I was still taking photo classes and my professors were urging me to be a photo major, um, but I didn't want to, I didn't want that specific practice to be marred with capitalism. Sure. It's like, I love to do this and I don't ever want to be paid for it. Um, and now it's like 20 years later and I realize that this is the thing I have done the most in my life and have given the least attention to because it makes me the happiest right um and then with like the advent of instagram and with camera phones and everybody is a photographer like what is special anymore and it's just it has its own mental spiral that i'm not fully capable of processing um so it's a thing that i still do it's the thing that i was doing the most i think in those years yeah but i was also writing a lot and maybe not making that much art at all you sure. know just like reckless in my early 20s trying to cope with the fact that spark had been taken off the market and where was I going to get caffeinated malt beverages you know mm -hmm. like these are the things I cared about when I was yeah 24 just having a good time I had like a weird adamant opposition to sparks where I was like I can pour white horse scotch in my bodega coffee like I've been <gasps> doing I don't need to yeah. Um, but that's nasty. That's, both things are Both nasty. of them are gross. I mean. <laughs> White, White Horse that's in, a, thing. In, a, in a milk and sugar bodega coffee, like a traditional New York, those shitty mm -hmm. foil beans bag bodega coffee. If you pour White Horse scotch in there, I am not joking. It tastes just like um, those Linden's chocolate chip cookies, the three pack. Um, oh, yeah. The, like really hard ones mm -hmm. that they sell at bodegas and like school cafeterias for 25 cents. It tastes just like those cookies. It's. I don't know what the science is behind that. <laughs> what the science is? Yeah. That yeah, was my I, breakfast for years. I miss bodega coffee sometimes. Like, it's so disgusting. Every time I think I do, I get one and I'm like, Yo, oh no, I don't miss it's this. It's so terrible. I did that last summer where I was like, oh, you know what? Fuck this. We're getting bodega coffee. And then I realized that I have taste buds now. It's um, not even the taste. It's the... It, and again, like, so much stuff is different with sobriety or whatever, but like... It might just be that I didn't notice before. It makes my body feel crazy. Mm. The like way the caffeine hits from that coffee is different. I feel <laughs> than like any other rush. coffee. Yeah, yeah, it's just like it makes me feel spun in this way that I do not like. I like that phrasing, spun. Yeah, drug mm. talk. 
<laughs> that eye contact. <laughs> drug talk. Yeah, drug talk. Yeah, but anyway, like, uh, so yeah, so purchased, you're just wilding, eating cheese, um, eating cheese, like having wilding. fun. So much fun. Just like having a space to explore. I've actually been thinking a lot about purchase lately because I grew up in Westchester, I think, as you know, and I like went there a bunch as a teen and I, I was like, um, it, you know, I definitely like had the kind of, why would I go to, I like dated a girl that went to purchase when I was in high school and I definitely had the similar, like, why would I go to college where I went to high school right. essentially about purchase. And so I didn't go. And then, um, since then I've met all these people that went there and like realized kind of what it was that I wasn't seeing about the place. And then mm -hmm. also I was, I just read Esther Newton's memoir, um, who's, uh, either anthropology or gender studies faculty there. Mm -hmm. And she was in the first, um, she just spoke at the Carnegie and she was in the first cohort of professors, like when that college opened. Mm. Um, she'd been fired from Queens College essentially for being a lesbian and um, the way she talks about the like kind of model that they were trying to make a university at Purchase in the 60s mm -hmm. is fucking cool sounding it's really interesting and the idea that like in the 90s just to, you know close enough that they maybe still were adhering to some of those principles but far enough away that they had hopefully worked some of the issues out uh, like I could have been there is mm -hmm. um, it's just something it's something I've been thinking about like this past week um, so it's interesting to talk about that you went there um, but yeah so you went there and then you went you moved back to the city service industry rut that is a real kind of black hole to get pulled into mm -hmm. and I think it's easy to get stuck in the like this is just what I do I'm well, like, the money is so lovely. Oh my god! Oh god, it's so great to just walk out with cash all the time, and so much. You're money. making so much cash that you're like not counting any of it ever. Yeah. It's just like, ooh, so dreamy. Yeah. And then you're also, you know, the the place that I ended up like the final restaurant that I was working at um, was a neighborhood spot, and you know, so you end up knowing everybody. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, your neighbors, but then you also know your business neighbors. So you're building this community, which I loved. I yeah. love that aspect. I love feeling uh, known. I, growing up, we didn't interact very much with our neighbors. My mom was kind of weird about it. Sure. Uh, and so this was the first time in my life that. I had neighbors, like I'd go outside and people knew who the fuck I was. I knew who they were. I kissed their kids. Like, you know, like it was a thing. And I also then realized that after five years, I, there was no room for growth uh, with this particular business. I didn't want to go into restaurant management because it's just sure. less pay and more misery. Uh, but I really loved this idea of community building. Mm -hmm. It's like, if I could foster this feeling here in one of the biggest, craziest cities in the world, surely I can do this somewhere else. Yeah. And that for me really became 
the motivator for leaving. So it's like, I want Whoa. to feel this somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and so arriving alone in Pittsburgh was a lot. Yeah. But like, what the feeling that I have now about the city and just um, wanting to create really beautiful things here uh, has become so important to me um, because I'm also in that weird time where I go to New York and New York is really foreign and strange to me now. Yeah, that's weird. And it's like I had the first, I had my first good trip home last month and didn't tell anybody I was going. I stayed in Dumbo and I kind of like, not, not touristy things, but like I was in Soho the whole time that I was home and I went shopping. I went to like my old favorite shopping spots and did the things that made me feel like myself at home, which mm -hmm. means it was like a lot of leisure and lunching and walking around. Um, but other than that, like going home has been really strange. Yeah. Because the things that I like aren't there or they aren't the same. Um, but then I'm not, I'm also not from Pittsburgh and I haven't been here long enough. Like I've been here long enough to know some things, but not long enough for like real true respect. <laughs> I think that so. I think that's our baggage from being New Yorkers because I I definitely have the like um, the like you got to earn your place in a place mm -hmm. mentality. Even like I say, even for my non New York listeners, but uh, this is just factual for me. Like living fifteen miles away, growing up fifteen miles away from where I lived for most of my adult life, I still had to earn my place in that. Mm -hmm. new neighborhood when I got priced out a and it's and it's um it's like um buttressed by the consensus of everyone around me right like mm -hmm. when I got when I got priced out of Williamsburg and I moved to I didn't get priced out I got bought out of a rent stabilized apartment very lucky um and I moved to um Ridgewood mm -hmm. uh I was talking to my downstairs neighbor this lady D uh and this like very kind of like a like a blue collar Irish lady from Queens from Central Casting. She's perfect, and she was like, "Who are you? You know, in my mm -hmm. building." And I was like, "Oh, I'm Colin. It's nice to meet you." And she was like, "Yeah, when'd you move in? Last month?" And I was like, "Uh huh." And she was like, "Where'd you come from?" And I was like, mm -hmm. "Williamsburg." And she was like, "Oh yeah, why'd you come? Why'd you come here?" And I was like, "My uncle lived down the block for a while." Like a 15, 20 years ago, and I really liked this pizza place on Fresh Pond and Metropolitan, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, and she was like, oh, thank God, bring it in. You know, like mm -hmm. the, the fact that I knew anything about the neighborhood was enough, mm -hmm. but it was like, um, then I left, right? And I drove for two straight days to Austin, Texas, um, where I was uh, going to move in with my girlfriend. And Literally, I'm not fucking kidding you. I pulled up in front of the house I was moving into and these people were playing with their kids in the yard across the street. And I 
opened up the trunk and I started unloading stuff and like maybe my third trip or something, the mom was like, you moving here? And I was like, uh-huh. And she was like, from New York? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, welcome to Austin. You're a Texan now. <laughs> and it was like, all I had to do was show up to be a Texan. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I think, I don't know what that, mm. like I disagree. <laughs> I also, I'm with you. I also disagree. <laughs> But I think there's like, this comes, like I think the, I might not feel like I belong here, but that I think the people that are from here, part of it is that I think the people that are from here get to set the terms of the place. Mm -hmm. So if they feel like I belong here, then I might not, I might not get it yet. But like, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Absolutely. Um, I think about these things through the scope of gentrification yeah, a sure. lot, you know, and um, I feel like perhaps if other places had that level of, of defense of like, why are you here? Um, cause you, uh, I feel like New York sold out all of its waterfront pop property, you know, for again, capitalist gains. It wasn't like a, why do you want to be here? It's like, oh, you have enough money to be here. Cool. Let's yeah. go. Um, and without that defensiveness whether it's like on the local level with your neighbors or on the political level I think that it is okay and necessary to ask the intentions of of people when they're kind of moving into your space yeah for sure um, I think a lot of folks involved in gentrification on every level um, forget that they have an obligation like yeah. you're getting cheap rent sure but like what are you doing for the community that you're now a part of are you calling the cops on them right <laughs> because they're too loud sorry you moved to this puerto rican neighborhood like yeah for sure this is what we do <laughs> we make noise yeah um you know, are you supporting local businesses or do you get everything Amazon primed to your house? Mm -hmm. Like, why are you here and what do you want to do with this opportunity to live below the, the average rent cost? Yeah. You know, um, I think about it a lot. And I'm like a black queer woman artist. Like, I don't have shit. Yeah. But it's still on my mind, um, like a, not, I think it was last year, I was nominated for Emerging Artist of the Year uh, by the piece, by, in, in Pittsburgh. Um, and when I got the nomination, I was like, I don't, what do you mean? I just got here. I'm sure that there's somebody who deserves this far more than I do. Sure, and that's yeah. like, that was my response to it. Cause I was just, it's like, what? I'm. Like, you're going to give this to a New Yorker? You're going to possibly give this to a New Yorker? Is that even yeah. in your best interest? Um, and I was scolded for having that mindset. But those things are important to me. Just being like, well, who's ahead of me on this list? Who else? Right. Because I'm, I feel like I'm an easy target, if you will. And there's so many people in the city that are not getting the light that they deserve because they don't have access to the shit that they need. What do you mean easy target? 
I, like easily noticeable. Right, right, right. You know, like I don't have like a huge social media presence, but I exist on the internet in a very digestible, amicable way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, it's, I have that sort of millennial full package thing. Like I'm easy, it's easy to see me in the world. Right. And I think that there are so many other artists who maybe don't fit that bill, who didn't study marketing growing up, who didn't like work for teen people as a 14 year old, who like didn't, who don't have, or didn't, didn't, or don't have the exposure uh, to how the world works. Yeah. And this back end that I did, and I'm lucky for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Becca, my partner, curated a show for in Texas, um, like a years ago for um, Latoya Ruby Fraser, the mm-hmm. photographer from Braddock, mm-hmm. and they're they've been friends ever since. And um, right when we moved here, we went to go see Latoya. Did these two events. She spoke uh, with Fred Moten at that church. Mm-hmm. It was, I was there. Yeah, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And then she did this thing at the um, oh fuck the August Wilson Center. Mm-hmm. Um, that was her and this woman from Homestead who was like a factory worker at a steel mill for mm-hmm. her whole life. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. She's a photographer. Mm-hmm. And um, was talking about her whole, this is what I'm thinking of when you say people that don't have the marketing, you know, like mm-hmm. a woman like that who's like in her 50s or 60s and has been grinding at this artistic practice with, uh, and like, might be um, kind of rudely classified as a folk artist or something because mm-hmm. like people don't because she didn't go to school for it or whatever. Right. But like, yeah, no, I think that's a really that's a really good point. That's really interesting to consider that like, who are the people? So, have you been trying to find who those people are? Um, I think it's starting to happen a little bit organically. Yeah. For me, and it has been that way. Um, there are people in this city that I really, really admire. Uh, like I geek out every time I see Alicia Wormsley and even though like she is one of the most down to earth people I've ever met, um, I still really, I get so excited just to see her and, and understand that she is out in the world making art for me and for people who look like me. Um, I get really excited about Vanessa German's work um, you know, there, uh, there are other people that I like can't think of yeah, sure. right now, but other black, I, I don't want to call them my contemporaries cause they're on another level than me. Like they're just people that I admire that's just like, yeah. holy shit. I'm so thrilled that we're all here. Um, cause a lot of people do leave the city, right? You know, a lot of black people will get their educations here and then go somewhere that is a bit more welcoming and I can fully understand it. Um, Wasn't Pittsburgh just rated the least hospitable city for black women in America? Mm-hmm. It's exhausting. Yeah. Like I, I slept all day yesterday um, and not, it's not a physical exhaustion. It's just mental exhaustion. It's, being really tired of people being surprised at how educated you are or how eloquent you are. Mm-hmm. Um, just having to explain that or even just 
the explanation of why I moved here, which was really jarring when I got to the city because so many people were, you know, they're like, you moved here from New York? And I'm like, is it that shitty here? Like, should I be alarmed that you are, like, what's happening? What are you telling me through the, the amount of shock you're exhibiting? Why wouldn't I have moved here? Yeah. Um, and then also the, the concept that, like, I must have moved here for a reason or for a purpose. Mm-hmm. Could I not have moved here to live? Right. Just to see what living is like somewhere else? Um, I think, but I, I also think that that is attributed to the limits that people have on their own, in their own lives. It's like, well, why would you uproot everything you know to go live somewhere where you know no one? Yeah. And I realize, you know, I realize now that that sounds crazy. Sure of. But I mean, it, I think it's so, it's like, it's just the thing I would do. Right. Yeah, when me and Becca first got here, we still have Texas plates on both our cars. Mm-hmm. And whenever we were at the dog park and people would see the Texas plates, they would say, oh, when'd you move back? Hmm. And then we would say, we have never lived here before. We're, we just got here. Mm-hmm. And they would go, why'd you come here? Mm-hmm. In this way, that was mm-hmm. like, um, I think part of it is the conception of people from here is conception of here as like, I saw a dude in Bloomfield wearing a shirt that said uh, Manhattan colon we built it they live in it I uh (laughs) I'm very exposed to the uh, what Pittsburgh makes the world takes yeah um, phrasing yeah and yeah, I mean, Pittsburgh has like a self-esteem abandonment issue that like the city needs a full-time psychiatrist for. Where I'm like, baby, I'm <laughs> yeah. so sorry that like somebody did this to you. Yeah. But like, I didn't come here to take everything and leave. Um, I'm sorry that but, fucking Henry Clay Frick hurt you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know it, and it's, it is hard because again, like I understand it and that's the defensive tone right of just being like well many many moons ago through action people told us that this city wasn't worth shit Mm -hmm. and so even though I think it's great the world has told me that it wasn't so why are you here yeah um but yeah it's it's it can be very tiring just to be outside and to be visually different than a lot of other people here. Um, and I think for weird kids, it can, it's a lot to be like, well, why are you different? Even though we're all sitting there being like, well, why are you all the same? Right. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I hear you. So what's your um, artistic practice like now? We're at your studio. You come here to work, presumably? I do. I do. Um, not enough. I've been fortunate uh, in the last year and a half to have like commissions and mm-hmm. kind of bigger projects, which have been nice. 
I have not had a chance to really come in and make work that makes my brain feel good sure. for, for me. Um, and that's partially because I'm, I moved into an apartment that's like closer to grocery stores and things that I can walk to so I have better access, but it is expensive to live there. Uh, and so now I am pretty much working to pay my rent again, mm. um, which is completely not why I moved to this city. Right. So uh, getting hit with the effects of my own gentrification. Uh, <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm not here enough. I would like to be here more. Yeah. Uh, often my work is seen as meditative. I assure you it is not. Uh, there is an intense amount of concentration and um, mental gymnastics going on when I sit down to draw. Uh, it's not by any means easy. Um, sure. I definitely didn't mean to imply that it was easy when I said meditate. I saw a video on your Instagram of you. Um, it's like meditated for other people. Doing brush strokes. Yeah. yeah. It's, really, <laughs> it's, it's really mesmerizing. Meditating. Yeah. And that's why I put it up. And it's it's funny because I feel like my practice has gotten, um, I've become more forgiving with my practice by keeping it off of the internet and not posting process shots or any of that. Yeah. Um, so I'm enjoying it more. But then there is this weird guilt that I have about what I owe to my audience. And this has been like a running thing for me over the last year of like, what do I owe the internet? Um, because it's a space for me to feel very safe and comfortable. Um, my, the people that I interact with online have helped me through really depressive times. Um, but then there is this other aspect of life of being like, well, what do I owe these people? And with drawing and with putting those images up, I love to know that what I'm doing can make somebody feel really chill or feel like I love having that effect yeah. on people. But then there's the other side of life where this is my basis of income and I have to consider how much shit I'm giving away for free. Mm-hmm. Like, these people really like these drawing videos. If I just took 10 more minutes out of my day and made a full video of this and put it on the internet, could I be YouTube famous? And then the capitalism spiral starts where it's like, yeah. here's a thing that I naturally enjoyed. Here's the, like, and then introducing the question of how can I make money off of this? Um, is challenging as a creative person. Yeah. Because I want to make money off of the things that I make, but I also don't want to make money off of everything I make. Right. Where is the line? It's like about, um, yeah, it's so easy to fall into the trap of like monetization or whatever. Mm -hmm. I remember when I my book came out, I was like thinking about planning a book tour that just never got off the ground. I did a few readings in California and a few in New York and that was it. Um, I just kind of lost steam booking it, but um, I was talking about it with this friend of mine who's like an older, kind of like first generation Berkeley punk dude, and um, 
owns some bookstores in New York. It's like a very dear friend. And I was like, yeah, and then I think I can do this tour. And I think if I can book three colleges, the whole thing can break even. And he was like, Colin, you just got a book advance from Simon and Schuster. You don't need to break even on this tour. Just do it mm-hmm. in a way that's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. And I like, that was how I did everything when I was 22 or 23, right? Like I had this job for a catering company where I made $30 an hour that I just like kind of fell mm-hmm. into and I would work 20 to 40 hours a month and my rent was next to nothing and like I sold a little weed and I did whatever I wanted all the time and mm-hmm. I wasn't worried about breaking even on the things that I enjoyed and I wasn't worried about profit and that's like unsustainable and sort of childish but like where's the where's the that golden but in between that golden ratio yeah mm-hmm. um, I I'm a big advocate for people knowing when to let somebody else do the job mm-hmm. and I can't wait until I have some sort of financial advisor because when I have money everybody has money yeah I'm that person for it's sure like I have money all of us are going out to eat like this is not a question um, but I am horrible with saving for a rainy day yes I just assume that more money will come which like thankfully has been my life can I hire a poop like $30 today and a thousand air tomorrow uh, but at some point I'd like to be more than a thousand air yeah um, but yeah I, I don't know where that happy medium is I don't even know if I really I never focus on finding out I always live in those two extremes yeah um, maybe at some point I'll have the wherewithal to prepare for something, for anything. Yeah. But being ill-prepared has been my lifestyle. I was always that kid. Like, I didn't study for tests. Right. I just had it, which has been a hindrance in adulthood, where I've had to learn how to practice things. Um, I went skateboarding for the first time two months ago, and... The first day out, I didn't fall, and I was really bummed out about it because I was like, "I'm just like, what am I like? Kind of good at this too." Uh, and the second time I went out, I fell a bunch, I hurt myself, and it felt so good to not be good at a thing. Whoa! And I'm sure that that's gonna like piss somebody off. But I've been good at a lot of fucking everything that I've tried. And it's a gift in some ways, but I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. Like there's nothing that I do exceptionally well because I'm just kind of good at everything. Sure. Uh, And and feeling and going out and skating and like hurting myself and not feeling good made me feel really human in a way that I don't experience all the time yeah that's interesting because I feel like I had a similar like didn't really have to try to excel youth and but the difference is that as I got older and part of it was that like at some point I kind of subconsciously stopped trying new stuff Mm because I was like I don't have to find out and then like I also just like found 
found stuff that I liked, which was doing drugs and being drunk. Um, and, um, but as an adult, I feel like I've had to contend with this notion that like, I don't know how to, how to be gracefully bad at something or like how to enjoy the, like savor the learning process. Like if I'm not, if I went out skating and I didn't fall, I'd be like tight. And then if I went the next day and I fell, I would be like, fuck this, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea that you can kind of have this holistic picture where you're like, no, it's good. Wow, that's really cool. It may, like I, I absolutely loved it. Um, I'm also in the process of learning how to drive and I was really anxious about going out driving for the first time. And going out skating made me feel much more comfortable with the idea that I could potentially do this. I could do a very scary thing that a lot of people know how to do. Right. Um, but that maybe I could get out there and, and do it too. Yeah. And kind of conquering that one fear made me able to approach another, which was really, really fun. Cool. I think everybody should go skating. I genuinely think that like yeah. everybody should be skateboarding. What are you doing? Um, it's so, it's just the best. And it's also like the, it was the first time that I felt outside of my mind and body for a really long time, like for a bit where it's like, oh, nothing exists except for me and this fucking skateboard and that's it. <laughs> you know, like none of yeah. my problems exist because I can't think about them. It's a really great activity. Even if you're just going, I was over at Switch and Signal, so it's indoor skate park. Yeah, you just that go place back is and great. Forth. Like it doesn't matter. You can just whoop, whoop, straight through the room and nobody's there to judge you. Carrie's great. Um, yeah. But yeah, not, not being good at everything. Such a spoiled brat thing to have to acknowledge. Sure. I feel I like I very, I feel blessed to be able to say that. Um, but there's a, I guess there's a lot that I've, that I grew up with that I, again, taking shit for granted. Yeah. Understanding visual language and looking at logos and understanding what, Brands are trying to communicate to you through font choices. This is like shit people don't think about. Right. You know. That you learned in high school. That I just, I don't know if it's that I learned it in high school. It's just like a, it's always been there. Sure. I, and I think also growing up with a lot of branding in New York where you're just like around advertising constantly mm-hmm. um, and, and inundated with how brands are trying to communicate with you. Uh, again, a thing I didn't think about, I moved here, it's like, I've been shopping so much less. And it's because I don't have access to stores, but I also am not being titillized by everything around me. For real. There's no advertising here. Um, or it's like those fucking lawyers with the yeah, um, medieval helmet sign or whatever. Yeah. You know, he just wants to point at me. There's nothing. Yeah, there's a lot less advertising here than there is in uh, New York for sure. Mm-hmm. I never thought about that. Yeah. Because even like billboards and shit aside, like every bodega is plastered with ad. Like every, there's so much just street level, mm-hmm. little tiny advertising that you interact with. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice. Most of my clothes are like 
everything I've bought is, I get it from like the vintage markets that happen. Um, and even some of those retailers like Cool Vintage and Cool Breeze Trading, like I know that they're gonna have things that I want. So I go shopping three times a year, this vintage market, I go see like the four people that I know are gonna have yeah. the things I love. And that's become enough for me. Yeah, that's great. You know, it feels like a little bit more simplified and more of what my life is intended to look like, which is very intentional and focused on like individual patronage, I guess. Yeah, nice. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about anything you're working on now that you're excited about? Um, I'm working on getting money. Yeah. I'm working on like figuring out grant stuff because now that I've been here for three and a half years, um, I've produced, like I was looking at my CV and I've made a lot of work in the city and w collaborated with a number of people here and I don't have that, I just got here guilt anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I feel as though I've proven to you that I want to do good things for you and I'm not going to abandon this relationship. Can you now support me so that I can not go to work for a week and maybe draw a thing? Yeah. Um, a lot of my drawings, you know, take 16 hours to complete. Right. And if I'm coming into the studio for a Monday and then a Friday, all of those days in between is just like lost connection with the work that I'm doing. Uh, and so I need to be able to be here. Uh, and also I'm paying a lot of money to be here. So trying to get that cash. Um, I have a couple of other installations that are going up later this year and then solo show stuff next year for June 2020 and a group show in Grand Rapids at the Urban Institute of Contemporary Arts with Marley Grace and other artists that were a part of the residency program I did out there. Oh, nice. Um, and then something in LA that's still tentative. So everything's like kind of nascent and weird. Yeah, and I'm just like, sure. give me money. Nothing is concrete. I just want to make artwork. I also love the idea of talking to people like between things. Like I, mm. I like the idea that like there's, there's these, fallow isn't the word, but you know, there's these moments where it's like, there's not something to promote. There's yeah. not something to, um, that you gotta hype up or whatever, mm -hmm. but you still have uh, this like kind of daily or weekly or monthly or whatever practice that is like uh, kind of become integrated into your life. And I mm -hmm. think that's that's really cool. Yeah, it's weird to still have value without uh, promotion, which is again like Instagram culture life where you're just like, what is my worth if I don't have a photo to talk about? Yo, right? I was gonna say, like, the way that you talked about feeling like you owe stuff to the public or whatever mm -hmm. on the internet is like the inverse of what I feel, where I'm like, if I don't, um, if I don't, like, uh, feast upon the, um, like, uh, sort of vaguely anonymous, uh, affection and support of these people every so often then like i i am like i will be you know it's like mm. i feel like a vampire where i'm like i need mm. to like i need to put something in, out there so that like people can give me this thing that mm -hmm. i need which is to be um told that i'm good or whatever mm -hmm. um it's uh it's just 
I feel like we have a lot of the same impulses and then different frameworks for how we view them, which is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the internet has given me so much. Right. Um, and, but at the same time, uh, I've, I've done a lot of like vulnerable posting and earlier this year that really hit a wall. Uh, I posted about, you know, just like cultural exhaustion. Um, and it was a post that like was reposted a bunch and got over 700 likes and I never really experienced that sort of thing. And then I felt that rush of like, well, what do you post next? Mm -hmm. um, and once I started feeling that weird internet pressure, it's like, oh, I got to get out of here. Yeah. And so I took a couple weeks off uh, just because I didn't want to feel obligated to the internet. Um, but also my audience is a lot of white women from wherever. And as much as I felt like I was doing the right thing in posting my feelings about this, uh, I also was doing a lot of unpaid labor and a lot of my internet life has been unpaid labor informing white people of my experience, which again, gift and curse, right? This is the duality. I tell you about how I'm feeling and then it opens the white eyes to be like, oh my God, I would have never seen it that way. And I'm like, of course not because you are a white woman. Um, but that's not my job. But if it's not my job, whose job is it? Where are those people? Yeah. And so it's, it's a weird, the, the white lens through which my world exists is very, very fucking strange. Yeah. Here I am being a part of it. Yeah. I mean, that's, the, and, and that's the weird thing. It's like so many, of my friends throughout my entire life have always been white and now I'm in this strange space of really needing black existence and not knowing how to connect to it because I've spent my whole life on the other side of it somehow. Yeah. Like I've been drowning in black hair care videos and the other day I realized that these are just videos of black women sitting alone making themselves beautiful and I could just watch this shit all day. I'm like this is like now that I am outside of little Caribbean of Flatbush and off of the A train and not really seeing black people on a daily basis, I inundate myself with it on the internet. I listen to more rap music than I ever have in my whole life. Whoa. Like all of this shit is ha like now that I'm not in it, I'm so thirsty for it yeah, that for I've sure. like become blacker than ever before through putting myself in this city. Where I'm just like, oh God, oh, there's a lot of shit that I didn't realize I was doing or just a lot of cultural aspects of my life that I didn't realize I was tapping into until I was tapped out of them. Yeah. Um, I feel so. like there's also just like uh, something about the like current kind of neo-fascist moment mm. that is it's it's made me feel and I've been like um, definitely like uh, I think like transitioning has to do with a lot of it where I'm like 
starting started hormones or whatever like a month ago and I've like thinking a lot about who I am fundamentally who I've always been what 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 do any of those things mean how far um, like what what is the purpose of having any kind of consistent selfhood but um, I have been thinking and feeling all types of way about being Jewish lately in this way that I have not really in a long time and I think part of that is being older but I think I'm only thinking about it right now in this conversation, but I think part of it is also this, like a response to this um, kind of cultural moment where I'm like, uh, yeah, I want to put a mezuzah on my house mm -hmm. so I could like kiss it when I walk inside, but also so that my fucking neighbors know that I am a Jew. Mm -hmm. Like, and I'm sure I live in Swissvale. It's real nice. It's a pretty diverse um, little community there. It's real tight. Um, I'm sure none of them care, but there's this like sense where I'm like, uh, no, this is who I am and you need to be okay with it. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. I feel like obviously like Jewishness and blackness are very different. I'm not trying to equate the two. No, but, but still widely hated groups, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, please. Um, no, I am thinking about that even in like my very large earrings that I've become known for wearing. Uh, moving to Pittsburgh in 2016, post, you know, like right before the election and then the election happened. Yeah, um, I had just shaved my head that summer. I had already had short hair, but never like just completely buzzed off. Right. And I started wearing really big hoops around that time and they just got bigger and bigger because I didn't want to be mistaken for a black man. Sure. In the street at night, which is such a horrifying thing to think about. Yeah. It's like, I need some indicator for the outside world to know that I am not a black man. Right. Because you don't want to be like the recipient of violence. I just don't want to yeah. be shot while I'm trying to walk home, um, which is its own horrifying yeah, thought. Yeah, it's fucking awful. Um, and I like I have some earrings that I make these hoop earrings that I wrap and a lot of people have asked me to make them for them and I'm like, I won't do it. Right. Because the reason I wear these earrings is not for you. Yeah. I'll make these for black women or for whomever POC that wants them, but like white lady, this isn't for you. Um, because they're, they're, they have a signifier for me personally. Um, but they're also, it's a part of this like urban aesthetic, right? This like 90s black aesthetic mm -hmm. that I've just fallen so deep into. Do you ever do the Janet Jackson, put the key in there? I have not. Um, I don't wear favorite. dangles, no, but I like do a, have a the hoop, hoop. Yeah, with, hoop the with the key. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm talking about from Poetic um, I was thinking about like Queen Latifah did that too because her brother died in a motorcycle accident and she used to wear his key earring. Uh, and yeah, just thinking about the ways in which hip hop influenced my life and seeing black women growing up. There are just so many things that I didn't realize yeah. were affecting me and growing up in a house full of women that were just powerful and amazing. It never occurred to me that my life could be in danger for these very same factors until I got older and, you know, going outside is still an uphill battle. Um, yeah, 
yeah, it's fraught. I mean, it's just really scary mm-hmm. to how violent the world can be. For no reason. Yeah. It's like I, any, a number of things could happen to me because I'm too pretty, too boyish, too queer, black in general, uh, any of those things. So I try to celebrate every day that I am outdoors. <laughs> like, um, yeah, what's that? There's that Pitbull song where he's like, because every day above ground is a good day. Or hey, <laughs> I love Pitbull. Yeah, who doesn't? Like, I mean, exactly. How could you not like that guy? He's just rich as fuck and just loud. And... So Miami, too. So oh, Miami. Mr. 305, God bless him. Miami, I've never felt uglier in a city than just being <laughs> in Miami. Holy <laughs> fuck. Yeah, what a place. It's outrageous. I was just like, I don't belong here. Like, I just, I legitimately don't belong here. There are parts of Miami, like Edgewater, that I, I think are pretty chill. But man, South Beach. Oh, no. It, yeah, it's not I for me. I'm just a monster in that city. No, 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 no. I don't know who that's for. I'll, I'll be in Hialeah at the thrift store. You know what I mean? The great ceviche. Yeah. South Beach is amazing ceviche. Cool. Well, this feels like a good kind of right one down crescendo yeah to the end is there uh is there anything you want to say on a podcast that uh i'm guessing maybe 50 people listen to uh what are you excited about oh i'm excited about um well i'm excited and very scared i all of my feelings right now are about transition and like being a woman in the world and Mm -hmm. what that means um because that is something i've like I mean, depending on how you conceptualize it, like I have been a woman in the world for as long as I've thought about it, or I've just started when I started hormones, or I started hormones and I will soon be a woman in the world. You know, it's like, I don't really know. Um, But I'm excited about a lot of stuff around that, like around dress, around like um, maybe figuring out that I'm a butch. Mm -hmm. Like, because I think the ways that I was uh, like an effeminate man do not translate to like me being an effeminate woman. Mm-hmm. Like I think I'm actually, I just wrote a thing um, where I was talking about uh, like my conceptions of butch identity that I related to as a young person being, I think the three examples I used were like Graham from, uh, what's her name? God, I can't remember the actress's name now. That uh, fucking... Whatever, the like long hair butch from But I'm a Cheerleader, mm-hmm. um, Queen Latifah in Set It Off, and I for oh, and I think Eileen Miles' posture on the cover of Cool For You, where she's like sitting in that chair like this. And, and I'm just, you know, I think I've, I've been thinking about that a lot, and I'm really excited to like um, continue to dress like a, a Wild Fang model. Mm-hmm. Um, but like actually be a lady. <laughs> Other- oh my God. When Wild Fang like jumped onto the scene, I was so pumped. Oh my goodness. Are you kidding me? Yeah. <sighs> it's like those clothes look like they're for me. Give me a cute cut jumpsuit. Yes. I, just, like, <laughs> I want just the hint of my butt to show. I want a, like, <laughs> I want a, not a slim leg. You don't want a tight leg on a jumpsuit. I mean. Some jumpsuits you do, yeah. but like, Just you know, like moderately, tapered. but I want it, I want it to, I don't want that big, mm-hmm. the Dickies painter suit from uh, Home Depot style where it's just formless, like big bud press too. And yeah. I will tailor your jumpsuits if you get them to take the leg in. 
Oh, nice. Should you need that service. Thank you. I just did it for someone else and it's important, so. Yeah, cool, thank you. Yes. Um, great, this was wonderful. Yay! Yeah, all right, I'm gonna stop. Yep. I know my rent was gonna be late about a week ago. I worked my ass off, but I still can't pay it though. But I got just enough to get off in this club. Have me a good time before my time is up. Hey, let's get it now. Drop it like it's hot, dirty talk, dirty man She a freaky girl, and I'm a freaky man She on the rebound, broke up with an ex And I'm like Rodman, ready on deck I told her I wanna ride out And she said, yes We didn't go to church, but I got blessed I knew my rent was gonna be late about a week ago I worked my ears off, but I still can't pay it though But I got just enough to get off in this club Have me a good time before my time is up, let's get it now. Hey, thank you so much to... Has my A changed since I started watching The Sopranos? Can a, can a long-term listener tell me? Because I've been watching The Sopranos, and maybe I did that A the same every time, but I think I sounded just like Polly Walnuts just now. Um, but uh, listen, anyway, more importantly... Arguably nothing is more important than me finally watching The Sopranos, but, you know. Uh, Thank yous are in order to a bunch of people. Thank you to Atia Jones, my guest. I will put a link to uh, her website in the episode descriptions that listeners can click that link. Um, I'll also put a link to my Patreon. Subscribe to that, Shiant. Um, Thank you as well to Lakara Occulta, the band that did the theme song. Uh, Thank you to... Um, Pitbull and Neo for writing this song. Uh, I think about this song a lot because uh, I don't know why, but I that part that Pit where Pitbull says every day above ground is a good day. This is gonna sound fucking crazy, but every time I hear this song, I I picture Pit like a like a post-apocalyptic situation where the sun has become um, poisonous to humans and everyone's living in caves. And then Pitbull is like uh, trying to trying to rouse everybody to like get go up to the surface, and and he says every day above ground is a good day. This is fucking nuts, right? Anyway, I like it. Um, and uh, I think I don't know. That's it. What else do I have to talk about? Fuck ice, free Palestine, no cops, no creeps, peace in the pizzeria. I'm out. This for everybody going through tough times. <laughs> Believe me, been there, done that. But every day above ground is a great day. Remember that. I know my